Welcome to Think Like a Penguin, The Art of Flying. This is the podcast to help you think outside the box, live more confidently against the grain and become your more authentic self. Penguins don't traditionally fly, but what's to say they won't one day? Hello, welcome back. This episode has been 34 years in the making and that is because I'm going to be talking about my story and where I've come from, what I've been through and why I live the way I do now, why I do what I do for work. And it's a story that I've never really thought of as being that interesting or that different or really worth sharing. However, it's only in my later years, in my 30s, that I've realised the life that I have led and the experiences I've had have um, been quite unusual at times and perhaps there will be some benefit in sharing uh, my journey and what I've gone through. So in a nutshell, we will be covering some quite triggering topics in this conversation, well it's really just a conversation with myself but in this episode. So just a bit of a warning, I will be talking about suicide, about mental health issues, anorexia. Um, I don't think there needs to be a warning but I'll be talking about sexuality and uh, parents' separation and moving to the other side of the world. So the, the first one is obviously the probably challenging one for some. So if you feel like this would be an unhelpful episode to listen to, then please don't. Um, I'm going to share a lot because I'm a very sharing kind of person. I'm very open and I've realised that there is value in being vulnerable and sharing my story. So I'm just going to dive straight in and go through the timeline of my life. So I was born in a lovely village in England, Worcestershire, that is called Sevenstoke. I had two older sisters, so they are twins, and they're one year older than me. So mum had, mum and dad had three little ones under the age of one, uh, which is a lot. (laughs) So a lot of my childhood was spent on my own, quite happily, quite happily in nature. We were really, really lucky, had a beautiful garden, about six acres. The the neighbour was a farmer, so the, the land just sort of backed onto more land and... I just remember really happy times playing out in in the garden, sitting by myself, propped up against a cow or just hanging out with the sheep or just exploring in the trees. So really beautiful childhood. And yeah, I just, I only really have happy memories. I think probably starting school was when I had my first experience of a challenge or adversity and that was quite evident that I was pretty poor at my alphabet, couldn't read and write very well compared to the others in my class and at the age of eight mum took me to do a test for dyslexia and confirmed that I I do have dyslexia and then decided to move me to a different school, so an all-girls private school which absolutely has helped me in my education and my intelligence and being able to read and write. I have no doubt that I'm better off for having gone through um, that schooling experience but with the all girls environment it was quite toxic. So at school I had extra tuition with lovely Mrs Lucas so she was my English sort of dyslexia teacher so if I wasn't running around at at lunchtime doing sports I was having extra English help or after school and 
yeah, I was always in the D grade. My schooling experience, I look back, was quite old school. Um, they graded us, so I was always in the D grade. It was quite toxic in that we weren't really given much praise. It was more about highlighting all the things that we still needed to improve on or we were told a lot that there was always room for improvement. The teachers would use a red pen to mark our work and it was always felt like I was never good enough and the highlight, sorry, the, the teachers would highlight all the problems. And if you got 98%, well, why didn't you get 100? What happened to the 2%? So it's very competitive. I suspect that was the school's way of thinking that they were going to help us to achieve and thrive and and set goals and and meet those goals. But I, I, looking back in hindsight, often felt like I was falling short and whatever I did was never enough. And I really started this pattern of needing validation, needing approval, needing to be seen and accepted and to feel enough. I think it really early on stemmed from the fact that I was um, essentially a triplet or born a year after my sisters and felt like from the get-go I was unwanted or an inconvenience or I was putting my parents in a position that they didn't want to be in, even though they'd had me. You know, I felt like I sort of got in the way a bit and life would be easier for them if I hadn't been born one year after my twin sisters. Also, to play into that narrative of never feeling enough, when I went to my grandparents' house, especially my dad's grandparents, we always had to sort of earn our love. So we had to earn the right to have an almond slice or a bit of marzipan by drawing a picture or we'd have to draw a picture or work hard or do something in order to be allowed to play outside so it's sort of again validating or sense of validation through doing something to deserve a reward or deserve recognition it wasn't love wasn't sort of freely given um and I still that's something I still struggle with to this day is that I feel like I have to earn people's respect earn people's love and earn people's attention or um validation um so that was that was school um obviously you don't know what you don't know and I, that was my own experience at school so it wasn't particularly unhappy at school uh, I really loved the opportunity that I got to do loads of different things at the private school we had a really great drama department really great sporting department loads of opportunity to go on school trips I went um, skiing holidays, so super, super privileged in regards to the opportunities that presented themselves. But um, yeah, always felt like I was on the fringes of friendship groups, never felt like I fully fitted in because either I wasn't clever enough or I wasn't quite sporty enough or I wasn't quite cool enough. But to be honest, I also just loved being on my own. I was very happy in nature. I'd rather hang out in my garden than go to town when we were 12, 13, we were allowed to go to the city. And I found it so boring. I had no time for that. So I've always felt a little bit disconnected, maybe too old for my years or very aware of people's behaviour. Even as a child, I was observe people's children's behaviour, kids in my class, and be confused as to why they were doing what they were doing because they were often doing it on a subconscious level. But I was very much analysing why I did what I did, why I thought the way I thought, how I related to the world around me, which I appreciate is quite an unusual uh, mindset 
as a child and it's something that I still do to this day I'm forever observing people's behaviors and trying to make sense of them even if they themselves are completely unaware or don't care about their own behaviors so things are going swimmingly and really enjoying the school experience even though I felt like I was not very clever and I usually kind of played up a bit just because I found the school um, lessons hard and then around the age of 12 I my world fell apart so I think 11 was the best year of my life I started to feel really confident I was being scouted for well I got a letter from England lacrosse it's called Centex it's this kind of feed-in program for lacrosse so to maybe go into their trial program to then look to playing for England um, I was scouted at the clothes show in Birmingham to go and take some photos at a modelling agency um, and I yeah just felt like I was in sport in art I'd won a couple of little art awards and I just felt like I was blossoming into my happy self and then one one thing that really triggered me was I went to shopping with my mum to um, a big department store and me being me straddled a bench in my denim skirt so I didn't sit down properly kind of um, straddled it and it ripped so it ripped front and back but amazingly coincidentally we were in the same shopping department that we'd previously bought the skirt from a year before so mum's like all good we'll just we'll just go in and grab you another one and I went up in a size and that really threw me because it was a change it was something different and I, that, that mem memory really sticks out. So that was the first thing, super minute on its own, not a major issue, but just remember it. And then the year after that, there was all these other things that started to change. So my parents separated. Obviously, that was a really scary um, experience. I had no idea. I always thought that only poor people separated or people who were in low socioeconomic areas or what I, we would consider sort of chavs because there was a show on on tv called Ricky Lake a bit like the Jeremy Kyle show where people would argue and they'd they'd divorce and I, I just didn't it never occurred to me there was never any arguing in the house or any stress between my parents that I we were exposed to so it completely came out of the blue um I went start to go through puberty hence the need for a bigger skirt but obviously I was just growing into a more, more womanly shape but that also meant my hormones were all over the shop and I was starting to have feelings for girls at school uh, I had a, a couple of crushes on some of the sixth form girls and that was confusing for me my granny died and alongside the kind of mild, very minor interest in the modelling side of things and then the sports, wanting to really push myself physically to try and improve and get better in the sports space, um, I started to restrict my eating. I started to, without knowing what I was doing, gain some control in my life. So as many people will know, anorexia is actually not about how you look that's just that becomes a, a secondary focus um, further down the track initially it can often start with just trying to control behaviors so I would limit my food intake I would only eat certain food groups I would start to over exercise I might miss a meal so I might have two big meals in a day but I was just in different ways tweaking my relationship with food and then 
people would start to compliment me, go, oh, you look great, or oh, you've really um, hit a PB on the high jump, because um, there's a tipping point where actually for a while there, I was fitter, I was stronger, I could jump higher on a high jump, um, I did have more pace, I did have more um, energy and endurance because I was training really hard and I was eating clean so it was actually probably positive for a couple of months and I fed off excuse the pun but those compliments and I liked the recognition and I liked those people who completely innocently were just giving me a compliment having no idea about the effect that that would later have I can distinctly remember certain people complimenting me in certain moments even though this was 20 years ago and holding on to those and the feel-good factor it gave me. So then I restricted more and then I think I gained an awareness of I love the validation, I love the recognition, I love the attention. So both of my parents, when they separated, were quite absent the year after that happened, unfortunately. Um, and I'm not saying that as a source of blame. I'm just I'm just pointing out the reality that I did feel quite alone. I felt quite scared. Having a, a more mature mindset, I wanted to be able to keep the family together, keep everyone happy, um, recognise there was a lot of pain in dad. So I was trying to be the mature, almost step into an adult role. But in doing that, putting on a brave face, I neglected the emotions I was going through. And I was only 12. So I was very young, really. So it wasn't until probably six months, six, seven months of really serious restriction that I started to physically show being really unwell. And my sisters initially said to my parents, look, we think that um, Olivia's anorexic because one of their friends had has also struggled with anorexia. And then it was probably only a year from the beginning of when my parents um, separated and, and when I was 12, 12 and a half, that I really, really became poorly. Um, so how did that present? First of all, it was an absolute obsession with exercise, but I actually ate quite well. I ate a lot and I ate the normal meals that were provided. We had beautiful meals at school. I love school meals. Um, we had three courses, so I'd, I'd eat really, really well, but I was just exercising way, way too much and going for runs before school around the race course or any opportunity just running around. And then the food restriction kicked in and obviously dangerously, I was I was doing both at the same time. And what often people don't realise with anorexia is that the mind physically deteriorates just like any muscle. So you have muscle fat wastage, um, and a loss of of strength and, and you lose weight, but you actually lose grey matter. So the, the brain itself be can become, um, well, maybe not shrinking, but you just lose your um, mental function. So reality is completely warped. So I started to have crazy behaviours, OCD, um, I was fixated on the number three and seven. So things like I had to stop the microwave at three or seven. So it had to be three minutes and 37. I wouldn't let the kettle boil fully. Um, obviously, these aren't behaviors that affect my physicality, my weight, but these are all little add-on extras. So even in a 
public place or someone's house, I would run across a room and flick the switch on the kettle because it was it freaked me out so much. I just, it was all about control. I would line up pots in the right size or shape. Um, I had, yeah, just funny little behaviours that I had to do that made me feel safe. And then I did more extreme things, which, thinking back, are horrific. So I would often try and tie myself up to sleep. Um, the completely illogical thinking around this is people that sit down for a long time are lazy. Lazy people are couch potatoes. That's just an English phrase. Lazy people genuinely get more overweight. So I, I associated sitting down with putting on weight. So I would stand up everywhere. Everywhere being, I'd be the only child in assembly of a room full of 300 people and the headmistress would say, we will start when Olivia Robinson sits down and I would not. So the whole school would stare at me, but my absolute dogged determination and complete warped sense of reality and the, the, the drive of the anorexic mindset would make me stand up. I didn't care. I wasn't embarrassed. I was defined in, in these behaviours. I'd stand up. Um, on the train, I'd stand up in class, I would stand up anywhere and everywhere, which eventually led to some really serious ankle injuries. And I had edema in the ankles, so lots of swelling, there wasn't enough protein in my body to pump the um, to pump the fluid out of my ankles, so they became really swollen and, and kind of purpley red, so sore, so much pain. Um, but I was defiant and I believed that if I sat down I'd get fat so I'd I'd stand up for days and days and days on end um, constantly twitching moving keeping myself cold so if you are um, I believed if you're colder you're going to burn more calories and we're talking maybe one or two extra calories but in the middle of an English winter with snow outside I would keep myself absolutely freezing open all the windows I would always turn the radiator off you don't have radiators in Australia, but that's just like a heated um, element attached to the wall. And then my mum's partner eventually broke it so that I couldn't change it. So I was just constantly trying to keep myself cold. Um, thousands and thousands of sit-ups, push-ups. It would start with 50. So 50 before and after a meal. Then it would be 75, then 100, then 200. And it just became more and more and more almost this theme of never being enough. Whatever I did in terms of exercise or food restriction from one week to the next would soon not be enough. And I'd have to be more and more extreme and more and more um, depriving and um, more hard on myself. So I lose track now, but I suspect, I think prior to being admitted to hospital, I was doing over a thousand of certain exercises every single day. Um, obviously the physical toll, uh, soon became apparent. So I dropped to about half of my current body weight. So around 35 kilograms. So I'm quite tall, so I'm five foot 10. So that's a BMI of under 13. So they do say that if you're under 13, then you're pretty much in death zone. The, the heart can stop at any point and the body can't sustain itself when you're so emaciated. So in terms of the risk on my organs, um, that was obviously super serious. But in terms of just walking around in a body that was so skeletal, I would often get cuts on the inside of my knees or the outside of my hips or anywhere where a bone stuck out, the ankles, I would often bleed. So I'd have to, at night time, 
if I wasn't trying to stand up. Um, when lying down, I would have many, many pillows between my knees, between my ankles, on the side of my hip, because I would get bed sores, and it was just bone sticking through really fragile skin. So that was that was pretty um, awful and uncomfortable. The, the crazy thing is, despite all of this physical pain, actually I almost sickingly craved the discomfort because it was a sense of achievement. It made me feel like I was really excelling at being thin. So in the beginning, and this I should preface all of this, and sorry I didn't say this at the start, this is my experience. So it's absolutely not everybody's experience with anorexia. Um, this is just how it played out in my life. And I'm just very much speaking from my experience. So please don't think this is true for everybody. But in the beginning for me, it was about an, um, a control, a complete unconscious need to control. So I was completely unaware, but I was starting to control little behaviours and things. Then it became a fixation on losing weight. Then it became a fixation on punishing myself. And the more pain I felt, the more hunger, the more dizzy, the more physical pain, the more I um, could self-harm and feel physical pain, the more cold I felt, the more um, disorientated, the more um, just the more pain I could feel, the sort of sickeningly comfortable that was. So that was always the aim because it became about beating myself up. I hated myself, absolutely loathed. Um, another fixation was on waste. So I became really OCD about not wasting anything. So that was kind of an excuse for not eating food. It's like, no, I don't want to waste it. Um, I'm not going to eat it on the plate. And then it became waste. But even as far as wasting a pen, wasting the ink in a pen. So I didn't want to write with it. Obviously, this clearly shows that the mind was delusional and all rationale went out the window. But I couldn't write with a biro because I didn't want to write and waste the pen but that that was a problem because in the middle of the night I would get up I wasn't sleeping very well obviously so I would get up multiple times a night and I would write things down religiously so I had lists upon lists upon lists partly because my cognition was going so my mental I was my concentration I was really struggling to comprehend stuff because I was so malnourished but also I struggled so much with time having time so having 10 minutes free in the day was so overwhelmingly challenging for me because I would be bombarded with all my self-loathing and my disgust for myself and my my emotional pain and my fear and lack of control it was I could not afford to give myself any time just to be so I religiously wrote down and usually this was in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep I would write down literally a timeline for the following day to the minute so I never had a minute unaccounted for um this is something that friends that know me now and even family will joke that I do way too much in my day and I can't relax and I cram but I can guarantee 100% it is so much better than what it was because I love having an hour to chill I love going to the beach I don't need to plan my days I do struggle when there's a plan and then the, it changes. So I don't like when there's a lack of um, commitment from someone or last minute, you know, a holiday is cancelled. Or I struggled with COVID because five um, different trips were cancelled last minute. And that kind of threw me. Whether that's, and this might be completely different, something to do with 
being autistic or something. I don't know. But I hate, I don't like when a plan changes and I still struggle a little bit with control. And I recognise that's probably one of the only repercussions of living with um, and experiencing anorexia and going through what I did. So all of these things um, basically ended up in me needing to be hospitalised. So the uh, we were doing a bit of family counselling and, and bless them. <laughs> Unfortunately, doing one counselling session a week wasn't really going to be enough to to stop my illness. But we did a counselling session, and on a on a they would always weigh me usually, um, but they'd let me know. And then on a whim, I was just taken out of school one day and and told I needed to go to a counselling session and they weighed me and I had dropped a half a stone in a week so I think that's six kilograms because another trait of anorexia can be that you're extremely manipulative so when I knew that I was going to get weighed I would drink loads of water I would um oh every trick in the book even put stuff in my ears, put stuff inside me to make me heavier so put weights inside me or something that weighed a lot um, I won't tell you where, but I think you can use your imagination. So I would become clever. The problem is, once you do that once, then what are you going to do the next time you get weighed? So completely caught unaware. And I had dropped from, I think at this point, six stone to five and a half stone. Um, and obviously, that was that was really, really um, not good. So I was admitted straight away into A&E, which was just a, a, really a place to hold me. Um, to keep me safe but um, I lost more weight because it it was just a general ward it wasn't a specialist ward for anyone with eating disorders so I just ran amok and didn't eat anything and I was there for two weeks just whilst they were trying to find me a place so there's a place called the Priory which is an eating disorder specialist unit and it's in London and I was offered a place there which is amazing it's a private facility but I only found out last year mum mum turned that down and I'm so thankful she did because when I finally went to a hospital there was only one other patient with an eating disorder and a hugely complex element of anorexia is that you become very competitive and extremely competitive with others with anorexia so you're often comparing your body to other people's bodies especially if you're both underweight then it becomes this fixation of trying to beat the other person or lose more weight or exercise for longer or be more manipulative or get away with you know different behavioral traits so it can become really toxic in that they feed off each other again excuse the pun for um trying to outdo each other so one thing that I will also mention is the and I, I will lighten the mood by talking about how I overcame all these issues. But one thing that is um, really complex is that often people say, I am anorexic, or I have anorexia, or I am, and then they, they name the addiction or the behaviour. Whereas for me, how I experienced it was anorexia overcame me, almost like um, I was the host, and it was the antibody, or it was the um what's the word I'm trying to say uh like a leech I can't think of the word it's got it's escaped my mind but um it was like a thing inhabited me and I was just carrying it around with me and it wasn't until people spoke to me Olivia 
and stop trying to speak through or to or change the mind of the illness that I could get better. So that's a little bit long um, later I'll talk about that but often people assume that somebody becomes anorexic and is and encompasses anorexia when actually I named anorexia Annie. Annie was very much there and Annie was very very loud and very um, dominant in my life for a long time but Olivia was completely separate from that and she unfortunately just lost her voice and lost her spirit and soul for a number of years but she never fully died thankfully she would have if I if I had died but um, yeah very important I think to distinguish the two. So one thing that really made it very clear that I was completely overtaken by Annie and anorexia was the colour of my eyes. So I have blue eyes, um, very blue eyes, and um, they became completely grey. So I, uh, basically my soul, my the Olivia in me, was just drowned out by anorexia by the time I went into hospital. So after my two weeks in just a general ward at Worcester Hospital, I was transferred to a, a mental health facility for children. And it was a really small place. So it only had a maximum of 10 beds. It was super cute. It had a, a really um, cute little school attached um, just down the lane. So the place was called Wall Lane Terrace. And it was probably the best option for me. It was amazing. It was in the middle of the countryside. Um, the problem was, or you know, it wasn't ideal, it was a four hour journey away from my parents. So when they wanted to come visit, it was a whole day round trip just to just to come and visit. So I was placed up there. I was placed on suicide watch. I had tried to jump out of the car when it, we were going along the motorway. Um, Obviously, that would have killed me. Dad grabbed me, um, reached behind. That wasn't the first time I'd thought about killing myself, but that was the first time I'd really tried it. And it was actually later on in recovery that I thought about it more seriously. Um, so I arrived there and I was there were two people on me at all times. And that meant on either side of my shoulder, I was followed everywhere, into the toilet, into the shower, Everywhere I was watched whilst I slept, um, I had someone on my shoulder at all times. Now, I'm a very, very sensitive soul, and I'm a very independent person. Obviously, when I was um, ill, I was extremely independent because I was always trying to exercise. But as a kid, I'm very happy in my own company. I found it immensely traumatizing having someone literally on my shoulder 24-7. I still get kind of PTSD. So if somebody is walking behind me in a shopping centre or in a school or just anywhere, on my left shoulder in particular, because after I went off two on one, two one um, observations, I went on to one one obs, and it was always my left shoulder, they would always stand there for months and months. And the main reason was to stop um, me from trying to harm myself, um, catch me if my heart stopped, but also prevent me from running away. So it was it was a health and safety thing. It was for my own benefit, but I found that experience so challenging. And I didn't really care about dignity by that point. I didn't really mind if someone saw me naked or I was just so delusional or so far gone. But it was just that feeling, the presence of someone on me constantly um, was really, really 
triggering. Um, the bed was a water bed. I needed that because I was so um, so skeletal that it would stop bed sores, but I just couldn't sleep on it. I mean, it's, it's like sleeping. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you can't sleep on a water bed. You're kind of like wobbling all over the shop and so uncomfortable and so just the noise of it. And um, I wasn't sleeping anyway because I was just in such a straight, say, a state of stress. So I can't remember a lot of my first few months there. Um, very, very grateful that we had time. So I know for most places in Australia, you get two weeks of intense care and then they just turf you out. And it's ridiculous because you can physically maybe make a teeny dent in your health in two weeks, but you certainly can't work on the psychological stuff. So going back to the mind, the mind, unless you're about 80%, 70-80% of your healthy body weight, then your mind won't function correctly. So when I was first admitted, I think I was 60% of my expected body or 50, I can't remember, but I was, my mind wasn't working. So there was absolutely no way I could do any kind of um, therapy. So I only did physical therapy um, in the form of eating. And the first few uh, weeks slash months, I can't really remember, there's a few standout occasions that were really horrific. One that actually was the first day because I was so scared and just trying to gain any ounce of control. I was so thirsty, so, so thirsty. Actually, that was another trait I would drink habitually, compulsively. I would drink all day, every day to fill myself up and try and um, curb the hunger, but also... Um, the more you drink, the more you need to drink. So I drank, 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 and I was so thirsty on arrival, but I was asked to drink a, a cranberry juice. I refused, and then was um, they were trying to get fluids into me, uh, basically threatening me with putting a tube in, and uh, sat me down. Two people pushed me and forced my head back, and to this day, I still get back pain because I think they did some serious damage. I was so skinny that I just feel like it probably did some spinal spinal damage anyway that's one moment I remember another occasion I remember a very very unwell um girl not quite sure what she had wrong with her but she was extremely violent and she came in and punched through two internal panels glass panels in this, it was kind of like a house with um, a bit like a common room, a kid's common room with bedrooms upstairs and downstairs. And she punched, she, she grabbed some glass and she was stabbing herself and anyone else. There was only two nurses on, me and her, because it was Christmas. I was too unwell to go home for Christmas and she was, um, she was obviously very, very poorly. So uh, that was horrific. And because I was so underweight and I couldn't leave, um, parents were four hours away, I had to fend for myself whilst they dealt with her. And I, I'm pretty sure she um, went to a padded white cell. And I don't know what happened to her after that. But to see that, I'll never unsee that. It was really, really scary. But what was quite... Um, sad in all of that is as soon as I was left to myself like literally within seconds of being asked to go into another room I started exercising so I um it was my first taste of being alone for for minutes and then I just smashed out push-ups um sit-ups squats whatever I could do and 
obviously looking back now I can see how traumatic and um messed up that is that you know my first minute of being alone I just exercised compulsively until one of the nurses came in a couple of hours later and found me passed out because I'd pushed it just way too hard I just exercised until I passed out essentially so yeah really really challenging time I'm not going to go into loads of detail around my experience I might do another episode where I talk just on my hospital time the most challenging part was I wasn't allowed outside and that was logically so that I wouldn't run away the nurses had enough to do in their day that no one could come and sit with me for half an hour an hour Um, I just didn't have that privilege but for someone that is obsessed with nature feels most alive in nature and just thrives being outside I felt like I was in prison for uh, the better part of a year and it didn't help with my recovery. I wonder perhaps if I'd been able to go outside once a day and connect with nature, maybe that would have meant I would have gotten better quicker because I would just stand by the door, bang my head against the door and just cry, just just wail, just like, oh God, it was just awful. Um, yeah, for hours and hours and end and the, the windows would only open a few inches and I would just kind of, have my head in the gap and just be crying, cry. I've never felt ooh, so um, so trapped in all my life. R- remarkable that the physical and emotional pain I was going through, the the lack of being out, allowed outside. I mean, I was trying not to cry now, but it was probably the most um, memorable traumatic experience of the whole the whole time. So I managed to put on the weight I got to 50 kilograms which was about 80% of my expected body weight but I really only did that because that was my only way out I just I didn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the only way I was getting out of that hospital was to eat my way out so I think it was about eight months after eight months I ate enough put on enough weight um rested enough oh hated rest period so rest period was the term coined for after every meal or snack. I had to rest for half an hour and the logic of it, I would always argue, but I'm not I'm not tired, I don't need to rest, I haven't done anything, I've just eaten. Obviously, it's so that I could digest the food and not go and um, run around. I never tried to make myself sick. So it was never about trying to stop me from throwing up or getting rid of the food. It was purely just to make me sit with the food in me so that I could learn that that's a normal thing that I don't have to go and exercise afterwards so I ate my way out and then um probably six months later I was back in because unfortunately I hadn't done enough work on the mental side of things I hadn't um realized the benefits of being a healthy weight I still had a lot of fears around control I was basically a kid um feeling like I had to grow up too fast and I wasn't ready to grow up and yeah I hadn't 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 resolved the issues that were making me starve myself and over exercise so that's the other thing with every single addiction or mental health condition that has symptoms I would maybe not every but I'd say probably the majority the symptom is purely that so in the medical system, generally, people focus on trying to solve the symptom, trying to erase the symptom. A bit like if you have a cold 
Um, people will give you a tissue so you can blow your nose and then that's it. But the, the runny nose is there for a reason. The reason might be you have hay fever, so take the flowers out of the house. Or the reason might be because you have the flu. Okay, so rest and you need to take some flu, flu tablets. Or the reason might be that you're allergic to something, so remove that. So in, a, in all of my um, treatment and recovery, I felt like there was way, way, way too much focus on what the symptoms were. I appreciate early on they had to just keep me alive and they had to get my weight up so that my brain could start functioning again. But then focus on why have I chosen those behaviours? An alcoholic is not an alcoholic because they are addicted to the alcohol. They're an alcoholic because it numbs pain. It's a distraction. It helps them with stress. It um, removes um, tra trauma from the past like whatever but we we focus and I'm very passionate about this and this is what I do now but we focus so much on the behavior that we forget that that behavior is because of something um, and we need to address the something so we didn't address the something with me and we didn't address my need for control and my um my pain and my lack of identity and all of my self-worth although it sounds super messed up I felt a, such a sense of achievement being able to maintain the grueling discipline of um, starving myself and over-exercising. Um, whenever I wasn't given opportunity, so if mum made me eat, or she couldn't make me eat, but she kind of severely <laughs> encouraged me, thank God. Um, so when I ate something or when I didn't manipulate the situation so I could go and do exercise or anything, then I would self-harm. So I would usually bang my head against the wall um, so that I would pass out or just to feel the pain or I just punch myself, punch myself in the stomach or um, dig my nails in or usually punch me. So it was actually like I physically couldn't deal with the disgust that I had towards myself for eating something, giving in, you know. So it was kind of the anorexia was physically taking out um, the pain on my own body. Um, so I relapsed, I went back into hospital. In that time, there was the one other patient there who she was um, anorexic as well, a little a tiny little girl called Kate. She's only 12 when I first went in and I was 15 when I first went in. She got out before me. And then by the time I got in the second time, she had also relapsed and was in a second time, but I think she was in a fourth or fifth time. And um, I don't know what happened to Kate, but she suddenly just wasn't there one day. I can only guess that the worst happened. Um, that's really haunted me. Um, potentially might have led to my recovery, um, but a few other things also led to my recovery and one was mum saying um, and I will always thank her for this phrase she acknowledged the commitment to anorexia so in a weird fucked up way it spoke to the anorexia and almost praised it but she acknowledged the anorexia by saying imagine if you could put all of the determination commitment effort and um, drive that you have into maintaining anorexia imagine if you could put that to something good and so it did two things it spoke to the anorexia acknowledged that but it also highlighted to me that oh yeah this is not normal to have this level of determination and commitment this is actually in itself quite a special trait 
and that made Olivia, the me Olivia, feel good about myself. And then, although I couldn't imagine putting it into something more positive, it opened that kind of door of possibility, planted the idea, the seed in my head that, oh yeah, I could actually achieve something amazing if only I could find a way to put it in something positive. So that was really beneficial. And then also, mum reckons um, when I came out to her, I think I was 16 and a half, 17. I'd not ever had an experience with a woman, but I very much knew that I um, fancied women. She reckons that kind of lifted the lid on some pressure and and I started to get better then. So one thing that did happen after anorexia, I had a much easier process the second time around because I knew how the system worked and I started to eat more um, quite quickly and I only had, I think, uh, five months stay. Um, but what helped was that I was given a much more freedom, so much more reward for eating, much more reward for going through the process quicker. And it did start to inform that obviously in the real world that's a privilege I was going to be um, get gifted if I could just maintain a healthy weight and it was more like the, the more weight I put on the more freedoms the more privileges I got and the more of a sense of happiness is a too strong a word I certainly didn't feel happy for about a decade but um, the more I could identify with myself so it was a positive kind of um, ball rolling into recovery that the the more I ate, the more freedoms I got and the more freedoms I got, the more I ate and it just carried on spiralling in a good way. Um, unfortunately, my mood, my connection with people, my connection with self, my identity um, was really, really, really absent. So my identity for a better part of six years had been anorexia. I I felt a sense of pride. I really um, was, I became anorexic and that was me. That was all of my life. That was my number one fixation. And I had done it at a time where everyone else was going through their teenage years, experimenting with things, experiencing social growth, um, having different social situations, going to parties, going on holidays, um, just nightlife, um, really growing in independence. I'd lost all of that. So I came out of hospital at the age of, I think, 17. And I still had the mindset and the social um, kind of relationship with people of a 12-year-old. So it was really, really lonely. And I just felt like nobody got me but I didn't get anyone else I didn't understand why people did what they did I didn't know who to go to I just was completely lost and um there were quite a number of nights where I would just go and stand on the bridge um and for whatever reason I didn't jump but there were hours in the night, I'd just sneak out, dad um, would be asleep or unaware, um, and I would just walk around the race course in the middle of the night and um, cry for hours and hours on end, so I, after leaving hospital, had been um, admitted into an outpatient system, so I had lots of counselling, weekly counselling, I was put on sertraline, so an antidepressant drug, and 
it was a really turbulent probably two years because on top of that I was also struggling with overeating and it went from absolute starvation anorexia to binge eating so really common when people have gone through starvation to then um have no control over their absolute need it's the body's way of protecting oneself so they did a lot of trials with people from concentration camps or people that have been held hostage and starved for many years in that it's really really common to go the other way as a form of um the body physically taking over and saying right we need nourishment we need um food which is like on a small level what yo-yo dieting is so when you are extreme and you restrict unfortunately the body kicks in even if you have all the willpower in the world, the body will go, oh gosh, I've I've not had enough nutrients and, and energy for a few weeks or months, whatever. So I'm going to overeat. So it becomes a compulsion. And I had that for about um, probably the same amount of time I was anorexic. So about five years um, to the point where it's not just, oh, go on then. I'll have a, I'll, all right, I'll have a pudding or, oh, okay, I'll have a second portion. It was compulsive so I would go into the staff room at school and steal the staff lunches I would go around bins in the street and eat anything out of the bins I would see something on the high street on the pavement and I would eat it I would steal food from shops I was compulsive to the point where I had a hiatus hernia which is where the lining of the stomach comes up through the esophagus because there simply wasn't the room in my stomach to hold the food, often I would just pass out in front of the fridge because I would compulsively eat. And we're talking grabbing a handful of um, defrosted food because it was not like, oh, I'll just wait and um, 20 minutes, have a little pie or something. It was grabbing that whilst grabbing cereal, whilst rummaging in here and shoving it in to the point where it, 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 it... the only way I could start was because my body would pass out. And it was absolutely agonizing, super duper scary. I went from 35 kilograms up to 75 kilograms in a year. Um, it lost me deep, meaningful connections with housemates because I'd steal their food and they thought I was just being rude or um, entitled. They didn't understand, which I, I don't blame them. They didn't understand that it was an absolute compulsion. Um, I lost a lot of friends. People didn't understand my behaviour. I didn't understand my behaviour. So all of this was happening as as well. I already felt disgusting for being sort of a healthy weight. And then I felt like I was going the other way. And anorexia for me acted as a source of control. So this was the absolute um, opposite. So no control whatsoever. I was never hungry for about three years. I wasn't hungry. And again, mum saved my life on many occasions. She said, sweetheart, you're just going to have to accept that you're never going to be hungry until you can regulate your eating and your body is trying to figure itself out. You have to trust. And it was so, so scary. And I would try my best to miss breakfast in order to then um, sort of prepare for a binge later in the day but all that did was repeat that pattern of behavior so then I had to eat something but eating something when you're scared of overeating and you've eaten yourself to the point of passing out the day before and you've got um, 
acid coming up from your stomach inside of you and you feel so uncomfortable. It's like Christmas Day times five every day of the year for three years. Um, ugh, it was just awful. And so that fed into my low mood. I was having um, obviously hormonal changes as well with the sugar um, addiction and then the crashes and I my skin was gross. Um, I went to university for all this was happening and it all got a bit much um, and one day I had a um, desire to cut my hair so this was another weird behaviour that just came upon me and I did a sort of asymmetric situation and then I just kept cutting and kept cutting and kept cutting and I shaved my head and then I was so appalled and so scared and so confused that I then thought, right, well, I can't face, I can't face anyone. So I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to end my life again. Um, but I, weirdly, I don't know where I got this sort of sense of calm from, but I was going to Africa. So I was volunteering in Africa to do sort of AIDS awareness. I had six weeks um, planned in Africa in an upcoming university holidays and I decided that I would frame it as if I had done it for charity and I was fully acting and I confidently just sort of walked into uni one day and and had a little um, basket and was asking people for donations and there was a lot of questioning about why on earth didn't I make more of a thing of it why didn't I plan it why didn't I get people like to watch why didn't I you know promote it so that I can make more money and I I don't know I just sort of palmed it off like oh I just didn't think about it properly but here I am anyway so I managed to turn what was a horrifically scary experience into a money-making charitable um thing so turn that around but you just the whole the whole experience of binge eating shaving my hair off feeling super duper lonely and um, just having no idea of who I was, was, I would say, more traumatic and more upsetting, uh, more agonising than when I was acutely unwell with anorexia. So the majority of my 20s were horrifically depressing, really sad time. I would cram my schedule with, so I did university and I played rugby I'd cram my schedule with extracurricular stuff. So I also did a personal training qualification. I traveled a lot. I, I worked overseas so that I could work and travel. And it was all about just trying to live a life that I thought people lived. It was imitating life. I was acting my way through life in order to try and find a sense of happiness or try and find a place back to myself because I, I didn't know who I was. I'd literally killed the version of me that was or had existed for the last sort of seven, eight years. Um, and the only new version I knew of myself was my 12-year-old self before illness. And I didn't have a scooby-doo who I was at all through uni. Rugby was really, really important for my recovery. Um, it gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a sense of community. I didn't ever really feel a part of the team. I really struggled. But it was um, at least a positive outlet. And it was a wonderful disguise for my binge eating. So I was often praised for my commitment to the sport. I played second row because I put on the weight 
and um, it was kind of like, oh, live, yeah, you're putting on the weight, you're lifting, you're really taking it, so you're putting on the bulk, little did anyone know that I was deeply, deeply unhappy, and um, had a severe binge eating disorder, but rugby was a great disguise for that, so um, I'm glad I came through that, and actually managed to play at Twickenham, which is the home of rugby in England, amazing stadium, and and played um, quite a high level, which I will always, always, always be grateful for, because I think that gave me enough focus outside of being unwell and unhappy that I could then start to work on myself. So after university, I was still a lost soul, didn't really have a plan, didn't know where I wanted to go, uh, couldn't rely on myself because I just had really sh- shitty low self-esteem. So for about 10 years, I genuinely believed that, probably longer actually, the world would be a better place if I wasn't in it. I felt guilty for taking up air, for taking up space. I felt that if anyone invited me to something or included me in something, that they were doing it out of pity and out of obligation. And I walked around with this sense of um, guilt for being on the planet. And I genuinely believed it would be a better place if I wasn't in it. I would somehow relieve the world of the stress of having to accommodate for me the weird, um, lonely depressed live um so that was challenging to 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 be in that space I still have times I still have moments only thankfully moments not certainly days or weeks or months of that but I still have moments where I think oh shit it's probably best if I'm not here um wherever the here may be so I did a lot of soul searching and a lot of physical searching after university I came out with an art degree um I didn't go to my graduation, that kind of just shows the mindset I was in. I was embarrassed because I felt like an art degree didn't count, it wasn't like a proper degree. So I don't have my certificate, I definitely graduated Um, and yeah, my whole life I felt like still I wasn't enough and I wasn't worthy of celebrating. I find receiving praise extremely difficult because it just feels like it's all a bit of a tokenistic or... I don't know, it feels uncomfortable, but um, yeah, I didn't go to my my um, graduation and I finished university with personal training qualification. I'd been doing a bit of PT on the side to support me through uni, but really had no sense of what I wanted to do or where, where I wanted to go. So just kept going on holidays, running away, I kept running away from life and myself. And then I jumped on a plane to Australia because a friend I'd met a few years prior had been traveling around the UK and she was from Melbourne and she said if ever you want a holiday come on out and I did so I um, I distinctly remember I'd come from rugby training it was raining I was in Wales I saw this poster at STA travel for cheap flights to Australia and I thought great I'm gonna get in touch with Elise my friend the only difference was that she was now working remotely. I had no idea what that meant. I'd never looked at a map, really, of Australia. So she gave me the contact details to where I needed to get to. 46 hours later, and five flights later, I arrived in Wyndham. So that's the most northern town in Perth. Population of, I think, a few thousand. And um, not much there. <laughs> One road. So stunning part of the world, absolutely amazing opportunity to be there. I wish I'd known at the time how fortunate I was to be there, but incredible experience. 
And then I just deliberately missed my flight home. So I was supposed to be there two weeks, but I just felt like I just didn't want to go home. I was speaking to Elise the night before my flight, said, oh, I don't really want to go back. And she said, well, don't then. So I didn't, but I had no plan. I knew no one else in Australia, except for my aunt who was in Canberra, but um, didn't connect with her. I just looked on Google, what was the cheapest flight to a major city? And it happened to be Perth. So I, I popped down to Perth. And then I ended up living and working on Rottnest Island. So I knew no one. I was in a hostel. And I looked on Seek and I saw this job for lifeguarding. And this was Tuesday. So I applied on the Wednesday, the following day, I had an interview. I said, slight problem. I don't have a lifeguard qualification. But if you are happy to um, enable me to get it, I will be your lifeguard on the island. So it was the water park, the inflatable water park, just in Thompson's Bay there in Rotto. So that weekend, a few days later, I did my um, bronze medallion. And then the Monday, I went to the island. Sounds amazing. Sounds idyllic. Sounds like the dream job for someone with depression, who is really lonely, and doesn't know themselves and doesn't want to be without a filled pack schedule. It was really, really challenging. So I really struggled, started overeating again, binge eating, um, felt really, really down. Medication is not free in Australia. It was free in England. So I didn't purchase sertraline. So I was not medicated for um, depression. And I lasted about three months before, three, four months, just shy of a whole season before I just had to, I just had to leave they were really lovely. They could see that I was very unhappy. So went back to the mainland. And then it was all a bit of a shit show for um, the first year. I just didn't really have enough structure. Um, I couldn't really hold down a job because the thought of being in one place for a whole day was just too much. It was too much commitment. And I, uh, yeah, I just unhappily bounced my bounced around. I managed to botch together a bit of money and all this time I had no access to money in the UK um, because only I had access to my accounts and my mum would go into the bank and they said no. So I literally had to start with nothing and figured it out somehow, did a bit of PT for HBF, which is which is really my only source of income. And, and then at the end of the year, I did farm work in 2J. And this is a whole episode in itself, but the lady that owned the farm, which wasn't a farm, it was just sort of a resident, um, a country property, she was proper schizophrenic, like off the walls, like odd. And she would get us to do weird jobs, like move the honky nuts from one side of the field one way, one day, and then back again the next day. There was nothing to do. And there was loads of us there. She didn't give us any food. She didn't give us uh, accommodation or money. So we were all kind of like slaves working on this weird farm in 2J. And I had to work weekends around doing this experience. And you had to do 86 days, I think, of regional work to qualify for a second working holiday visa. So a second year in Australia. And I just, at that time, didn't know that I wanted to live in Australia. But I did know that I didn't want to go back to the UK because the UK for me was such an unhappy place and ironically or stupidly naively I associated place with happiness obviously my happiness all of our happiness or unhappiness is within us so there's no point in trying to run away from a place but at the time 
I didn't want to go back to to the UK so my only option was to stay in Australia and I uh had a horrible experience where her boyfriend of I don't know 70 plus years tried to be inappropriate with me in a shed so I threatened to call the police and in the process he's oh get your papers get your papers don't call the police signed the paper which was a one paragraph on an A4 piece of paper stating the time of your starting of your placement the date you finish two signatures Bob's your uncle Sally's your aunt done and my heart could have broken. So I could have avoided all of that experience. At one stage, I was living for a month in an asbestos house that didn't have a back on it. So it's completely open on a mattress. And I was chipping rocks, um, sorry, chipping off um, bricks, cleaning bricks with a chisel. I was like, I honestly feel like I'm in a third world country doing slave labor. Um, it's just horrific, horrific experience. And I, I was so cross at this, the process to pop into the application for the government to approve you for your second year was so simple that I could have forged it and not have to go through any of that trauma. Anyway, I did, I did it. I didn't do my full days anyway because of the way they treated me and they um, signed it early, but uh, that gave me a second year. Um, Second year was a little bit better, um, except I got chronic fatigue. Fortunately, I was dating someone that was enabled um, me to kind of not have to work so I would faint twice three times a day um, and it is purely probably because of the trauma that I put my body through uh, off the back of anorexia I played rugby almost semi-professionally so 25 hours a day um, two matches a week and so my poor body was just like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> to me um, so that was a challenging year and then I uh had to find another way to stay so that was through doing a two-year diploma in remedial massage so I paid $25,000 and that really irked me really pissed me off because people were complaining about having to buy books and I knew for a fact that they were getting the diploma for free and then there we were um and we were only allowed to work certain number of hours And I was doing uh, my own PT stuff and I was um, constantly having to change the time I worked because the TAFE course thought it would be appropriate. We had to do 200 hours of volunteering and they thought that um, they would fairly so, but they would swap the shifts that we did. So I would book all of my um, PT on a Saturday morning and then the next term they'd be like, okay, Liv, now you're in the clinic Saturday morning, so you have to book your clients for someone else and so it was so stressful because I was having to try and fit work around this ever-changing calendar anyway got through that um there is so much more to this story I've just looked at the clock and I'm appreciative of the time so I'm just gonna in a nutshell really quickly um jot down what happened after that it might be in a bit of disbelief I sometimes am but Um, timeline really fast and then I'll do another episode if people are interested but after I did um, my massage I ended up working for the WACA I ended up doing cricket for some international cricket teams did a couple of world cups that was incredible so lots of sports remedial massage worked in different physios and then I um, put the feelers out for various schools to offer personal training and 
Presbyterian Ladies College um, took me on and I did PT on a contractor kind of basis with the staff and students. And then that ended in me being approached um, or I kind of fell into a job with um, Andrew Forrest and I was his wellness specialist and I did lots of work for his family predominantly but also with the staff in his office. And then that led to me um, realising that my passion really was in art, mental health. I'd done a diploma in art therapy uh, a couple of years before I worked for the forest. And that has led me to where I am today. So all of my experience, all of the trauma, all of the pain, the heartache, all of the stress, um, the physical, um, the emotional strain that I went through, I now funnel that experience into the work I do as a life coach, art therapist and um, artist. And I work in schools, I've created artworks by Liv and we do um, lots of life skills but also mural creation and focusing on mental health and just talking about how um, there's just so many important life lessons that I think we aren't taught at school that I really hope that I can pass on to adolescents and youth so that they don't have to go through anything like what I experienced Um, and just little nuggets of wisdom that if I can help one person to have more awareness, self-awareness or change a behavioural habit or change a mindset then um, yeah I think that has value. One hour, ten minutes Uh, Thank you for sticking with me, guys. I am going to wrap it up there, partly because I've got to go and play cricket and I don't want to be late. But also, there's so much more to the story, but I hopefully have covered uh, quite a a large component of what makes me me and why I am the way I am. And I acknowledge that I still have issues around needing to feel in control. I still... um, I'll always be super duper sensitive and an emotional soul. And I'll always feel a little bit lonely and a little bit... Um, on the outskirts because I don't feel like I can relate and people can't relate to me and so that's a really um, hard place to to live in I, I am very very lonely a lot of the time but I think people mistake that as me wanting to be on my own and wanting to be independent but it's more about I just don't feel I fit in so if, if anyone has ever made me fit in and helped me to feel part of a crew or a group or a social situation, thank you, because it is a lifelong mission of mine to feel like I belong both in myself, um, but within a social group. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to this. Um, if you have any questions at all, if this has raised anything for you, um, please get in touch. And please share, because I think the more people that can speak from a positive experience um, and can prove that you can get through these things, then the better that is for people that may be struggling currently. If I had someone that I could look to that had overcome these issues when I was struggling, um, there was there was one lovely lady, Shan, um, but she was still, I think, a little bit unwell herself. But yeah, I just think there's so much value in sharing these experiences to help and support people who are going through something similar. So that's me. Um, I won't go and have a lie down now. I will go and hit some cricket balls and hopefully have a good game. But um, thank you for listening and thanks for being in my life. Okay, bye. Bye.